What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli. And we're going to be talking some NBA rookies today. Uh, I think as expected, this 2020 draft class was a little bit devoid of star power at the top, with a few exceptions. But the depth of talent has lived up to the billing, where there are just so many low-level starters, high-level role players, that it was actually tough to come up with the all-rookie teams, which was our task today. So just like the NBA does, we're, we're trying to pick out five first-team all-rookies and five second-team all-rookies. Positions are not relevant here since they are not relevant on the official ballot either. And it was a tough process. Was it as tough for you as it was for me, Dan? Yes, it was. it was incredibly difficult. I just... I don't even know like how to approach some of these second team names because it felt like my honorable mention list. I had to like really work hard to not have it be double digits. Yeah, I was I was trying to narrow down before we were recording and we went through our teams with each other, but I had seven people that I couldn't even forget about honorable mentions, but I couldn't like delineate between them on the second team. I just wanted I couldn't figure out the math wouldn't work out five spots and seven players. I just couldn't make it work. I don't know why. Square peg, round hole. Yeah. Do you want to start with um, – And here's a quick question. Do you think any of this has the potential to change before the season ends? I'm reticent to always do awards. I want to wait like until the season's over, but then no one cares about them at that point, really. And I'm wondering if this is one of those things that you could see. We know who's going to win MVP, for instance, in the one spot. So the only thing you debate there is two through five on the actual right. ballots. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it definitely can change just because the the threshold between so many of these players is so minimal. The, like a, a hot streak from um, Aaron Neesmith, right, is is coming on really strong for the Boston Celtics towards the end of the season. Another week of ridiculously scorching shooting and positive contributions. And yeah, he might work his way onto the second team. I think the only thing that is a lock here is three names on the first team. And even beyond that, there's a lot of of potential inclusions for the fourth and fifth spots on the first team, much less the five on the second team. It's tough. And because the gaps between all these, these natural tiers that should form are so minimal. Yeah. I think there's absolutely potential for this to change fairly significantly. Do we, why don't you take us off with the three locks? Yeah, I mean, it has to be LaMelo Ball, Tyrese Halliburton, and Anthony Edwards, and not necessarily in that order. But those are the three obvious Rookie of the Year contenders. I think LaMelo Ball would have won the award kind of going away if he hadn't had the fractured wrist that kept him out for a while, even though he has managed to return before the end of the season, albeit clutching at his wrist in a scary way sometimes now that he's back on the court. Anthony Edwards has come on so strong after the All-Star break and really even a little bit before the All-Star break where he's no longer just putting up points because that's his role and he's not doing so efficiently. He's taking the right shots. He's 
showing better shot-making skills. He's showing more willingness to get his teammates involved. His defensive presence has improved. He's done absolutely everything that you could want to assert himself as, yeah, this this guy is 100% unquestionably a franchise cornerstone for the Minnesota Timberwolves. And then there's Tyrese Halliburton, who might not have the star power of those other two names, but he's just been steadily productive without any holes in his game, filling whatever role the Sacramento Kings ask of him from start to finish. And steadiness is the name of the game there, and it has paid off. I don't think Halliburton is much of a threat to win Rookie of the Year just because he hasn't gotten the same attention as those other two, but he, without question, deserves to be in that top tier of unquestionable locks for this first team spot. I couldn't even add anything there. The only thing I might say, or I will say, I'm not convinced that in my rookie of the year ballot, Hal Burton's not going to be my runner up. I still might place him above Anthony Edwards looking at end to end impact. He was good this year and he's injured and out for the season, which totally sucks. He was good this year on both ends of the floor, which is incredibly tough to do as a rookie. Especially on a Kings team that doesn't play defense. Correct. Uh, Sometimes they play defense, but very rarely. And at the beginning of the season, they were just getting torched because they were switching everything just for no reason. They would switch. Still, I, I do think people will gravitate more towards Edwards because he's a flashier scorer and a higher volume scorer, which I think matters. But I also think that people undersell how much flair there is to Halliburton's game. There's more craft there when he's on the ball. But I don't have anything else to add with the with the other three. I think it's funny. Our last two names on the first team really differed. Originally, but I think we ended up having no, no. one is the same, right? I went back. I flip-flopped it back. You went back. Okay. Yeah. So my my first inclusion there who was, I mean, again, these positions within the all-rookie teams are not ranked. You know, they're all just first-teamers or second-teamers are not on them. But for all intents and purposes, I wanted to put this together in the order that I had them included. So my fourth name was Jay Sean Tate, who was undrafted in 2018, played overseas, overcame a lot of hurdles to get to the point that he was in the NBA. I would highly, highly recommend reading Mirren Fader's piece on him for The Ringer. It'll just add so much context to what he's been through to get to this point. But he's been such a consistent energy presence for a really bad Houston Rockets team that has undergone a lot of turmoil. I think it's kind of gravy that he's averaging 11.2 points per game and shooting 50.6% from the field. He's not much of a three-point shooter, but the 60, defensive... 60-plus percent on twos, though, for him. Yeah, he's an efficient finisher around the rim for sure. But the intensity that he brings on the defensive end is contagious. It hasn't necessarily led to success on that end, but as an individual, he has looked the part of a perimeter stopper, of a wing defender, a guy who can fill a number of different roles and show malleability on that end of the floor without ever letting that it, that level of intensity waver. He impacts passing lanes. He's a pesky point of attack defender. There's There are just so many positives to his game on that end of the floor that all stem from this just indefatigable motor that he has. That again, all the offensive contributions are just kind of gravy there. And I, I think it's it doesn't typically happen where an undrafted rookie from years ago makes an all-rookie team. But I think he's at least a lock for the second team. And I really do think that he should be strongly considered for one of those first team spots. I agree with everything you said. I did not have him on my first team. I had him on my second team. 
And I think the reason why is I would have liked to see a more variance from him on offense to have just any sort of jumper. And then I don't want to say his defense is uh, overrated because he is, he is feisty as hell. He is not long as hell. Yeah. He is not defending consistently the best players on the other team though. There is just, you you can look at data and I think he's like fifth on the team in guarding the number one option. Uh, There is the noise of, okay, well you saw John wall there a lot because he plays point guard but they were more wanting to use Sterling Brown in those positions for some of the time. Uh, also Daniel house jr. Before he was injured, David Nawaba as well. And I think that because he's a rookie, what he's doing defensively is incredible, but I, I put, uh, so the person I put, I think instead of him basically is Facundo Campazzo and Facundo Campazzo is a hell of a defender too. And first of all, I didn't know much about him coming in. I think, if you remember when we were talking about the Nuggets heading into the regular season, I didn't understand the Composo signing because I thought they needed more defense that he was going to bring. I didn't think he was, his size was going to hold up, even though everyone had said he's a high-energy player there. And also they had Monte Morris, the best backup point guard in the league probably, and now him and Composo were both those guys. You don't have to tell but, me that. But Fukuda Composo has far and away succeeded uh, – exceeded my expectations and one it's defensively because there's there's ball pressure there he is so disruptive we've seen even more from him lately which i think helps his case for the first team because jamal murray's injured monte morris has been injured as well will barton has been injured too and so that they've really leaned a lot on him lately and he's up to the task i think you want more from him on offense but he's has his three-point percentage up to 36.3 percent very close to to league average uh, you know, you can't really look at him and say, well, what is he going to do if, if he gets inside the arc? He's not like this. He's, he's finishing okay around the rim, but you know, he's not going to get there a ton. He can run an offense though. He is an exceptional passer and some of the passes he throws and you just don't see it. Not that he's not throwing a ton of passes, but you don't see it in his assist numbers. But like the fact that this team has Nikola Jokic and Fakuna Capazzo on, on, in the same rotation, we just, we probably haven't appreciated it enough because they're both Jokic more so. But that's like the duo. Name a duo in the NBA that can throw collectively more ridiculous passes. And I just I don't, don't think I can. And so I had him there. It was because he exceeded my expectations pretty much everywhere as his shooting started to normalize on offense. Uh, even kind of look at the steadying hand he's brought in Monte Morris's absence. And But a lot of it was the defense for me. And I think he quietly, you don't expect this from him because of how deep the Nuggets are overall. And they're trying to win. That's the other thing. They're they're still a title contender. They're in that top five um, Western Conference conversation. He is 11th in all rookie minutes. That's for when you play for a contender, that's not nothing to me. I struggled with where to put him. Um, I, I did have Compazzo on my second team. Um, I, I didn't really consider the idea of moving him up to the first team, though, just because I think that he's largely benefited from the situation in parts. Um, like even in the last dozen games since he's moved into the starting lineup on a more permanent basis, the shot has fallen off a little bit. And I think it's been pretty clear that Denver is thriving because of Jokic's continued excellence and because Michael Porter Jr. has been the one taking on an even larger offensive role. And yeah, Campazzo has been the steadying presence. He's been a brilliant passer. He's continued to be a pesky defender who makes a legitimate impact on that end. But I can't help but have this feeling that it's still a bit more situational 
than the success of the other guys I have on my first team. Not hating on the selection by any means. He's had a really, really strong first season and proved that there's more to his game than we initially thought when he did join a Nuggets team that didn't seem to make much sense for him. Fair enough. Does sound like you're shitting on him, though, even though it said you weren't. But yeah, Maybe a little bit. Um, my, my last inclusion on the first team, which was a really tough one, was Emmanuel Quickly. Uh, consistency, not necessarily there. The ability to get to the foul line, not necessarily there. But the, the hot shot making, the floater game, the presence that he brings on the offensive end and the ability to give the Knicks that secondary ball handler that they've lacked in a lot of situations – now we've we talked um, in previous episodes and on other shows that we have appeared on about whether it's going to be him or like Alec Burks who's tasked with stepping up in the playoffs in that kind of role. I still think it could be quickly as long as he's on fire, which he has been for enough portions of this season that I wanted to give him some love here. Yeah, he actually ended up going on my second team. I don't feel too confident about it. Maybe I more so wanted to reward. Isaiah Stewart, who I rounded out my first team with for the work that he's done. He's been better on defense than people have credited. Uh, We've noted the impact rim numbers with him on and off the court for Detroit. Uh, He gives you something on offense. They've they've explored his three-point range. He's someone that is not going to be super explosive to the basket when using him as a roller, but he's going to navigate the floor really well when he's coming off screens. Uh, we've seen, you know, there was a few games that we had this wicked chase down block. And so he's not the fastest player. Like he's going to get up and down the floor. And when it came to, I looked at, you know, Emmanuel quickly, Facundo Campazzo, Isaiah Stewart, that was like the decision for me was tough. I ended up favoring the players who had logged more minutes. And there's a chance, I think you could argue that quickly's minutes are slightly more impactful if you really wanted to, because he's going to have the ball in his hands more and he's hitting those super deep threes. But I, I, Isaiah Stewart, just sort of the the IQ and the understatedness with which he's playing. Uh, I feel like he's been more consistent this year, too. That might have to do with how the, the DR Pistons use him. We've seen quickly, not really fall out of the rotation, but his playing time is varied, especially post-Rose trade. And it was more so because it felt like the Knicks wanted to play him more with Derrick Rose. They weren't limiting his minutes because of Derrick Rose. It was when Rose was injured. So quickly made my second team, but I ended up going with Isaiah Stewart in that final spot for first team. Isaiah Stewart was my second inclusion on the second team. I actually don't know that I have him first on his own team among rookies, just because moving on to the second team, I guess, uh, Sadiq Bey needs a lot of credit for the 3 and D presence that he's brought to this Detroit team and the stability that he's provided despite Detroit playing roughly 76 players during the 2020-21 season. Now, he's he is still shooting... 38.1% on 6.3 attempts per game. Only 35 qualified players in the NBA this year are clearing 6 and 38, respectively. And they're all established good shooters. I, I think it's already abundantly clear just how much of an impact he can have on a, as a floor spacer on this low-level team, but also when this team is ready to be more competitive. That role is going to translate. I'm not entirely sure that Stewart's game will translate as well when the team is ready to compete because he's such a, an energy, high-effort guy, and he does so many good things, but you know, fouling can be an issue at times. He's definitely not going to create many offensive looks for himself. He's trying to space the floor. It hasn't really been that successful. He doesn't get to the foul line a lot as a big, and I'm, I'm giving these negatives just to justify why he's not on my first team, 
but obviously he's still been a remarkably impactful rookie at a tough at a position that's pretty tough to immediately thrive at. Sadiq Bey was on my second team, and in addition to everything you say, one of the things that we've noticed this season too is there's more ball skills there offensively, where T.A. is going to compete defensively. He can knock down threes. He's over 38% this season. He's not been the most efficient player when they're running the ball through his hands. There's more to his game there to plumb, though, and I think that absolutely matters. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Rootmetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. So to recap my first team, and then I'll name who's on my second team that we've already talked about. Lamella Ball, Tyrese Halliburton, Anthony Edwards, Facundo Campazzo, and Isaiah Stewart were on my first team. And the players that we have talked about already that are on my second team, Emmanuel Quickly, Jay Sean Tate, and Sadiq Bey. And I had LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Halliburton, Jay Sean Tate, and Emmanuel Quickly on my first team. And we have now talked about Sadiq Bey, Isaiah Stewart, and Facundo Capazzo off of my second team. Um, you want me to get started with the final two second team spots? Yeah, let's do it. I have, and I feel like he started to fly under the radar. I have Patrick Williams on my second team. He has been a joy to watch because there's the Bulls have really tried to vary how they're using him. One of the things that's been a constant, and you could see it now, they're going to really make him work defensively by putting him on these really tough assignments. And they probably want to know whether he can handle it long-term. I think he's done an excellent job of holding up relative to to who he is this season uh, when he's going up against, you know, effectively twos, threes, and fours. He's switched onto a bunch of point guards. He hasn't really guarded centers that much, but I think long-term he might be able to do that. I would say based off his body of work this year, he can capably defend four positions, which is nothing to to sneeze at. I like the idea, too, that I, I think he has more ball skills to plumb. He's not necessarily getting that chance as much in Chicago, and you're not always going to see it in the, you know, in his efficiency numbers there. But he's hitting, you know, 38.3% from three, 51.1% on his twos. This is someone who I think is going to end up being a, a decidedly valuable two-way player. And he may never broach stardom. He's in that Tyrese Halliburton camp, although I'd have Halliburton significantly ahead of him and more likely to become an all-star, where he just does so many things that are solid. I don't know if he's going to stand out in any one area and be elite. But they, the Bulls got their hands on. Taking him at number four, a lot of people thought was a reach. And there are players behind him that maybe they regret passing on. Chief among them would be Tyrese Halliburton. There are so many teams that pass on Halliburton too. And I think Williams has sort of justified that top five draft stock. Yeah, I have him on my second team as well for all of the reasons that you mentioned. I'm similarly not quite sure what to make of his ceiling, but the floor is higher than I thought it would be, which is a testament to the work he's already put in. This this guy came into the NBA as the youngest NCAA prospect in the NBA draft. He was very much this moldable ball of clay, 
and the Bulls are already successfully molding him. It's pretty clear that he's going to have a positive impact on both ends of the floor. How positive? Not quite sure yet. I'm not sure the Bulls know yet. But the fact that the floor is already this high, I think given the where the strengths of this draft class were supposed to lie, it definitely justifies using the number four pick on him. You know, ideally you're trying to find a star that high up in any draft selection process, but we kind of knew going in that this was a class that was devoid of much star power and had a lot of potential good contributors who could play positive basketball for a long time. And the fact that they found a guy who unquestionably looks like he will fill that ladder role, but still has enough untapped upside in basically every area imaginable that he could still fill that star designation down the road. I think that's a huge success for the Bulls. Sweet. We were in lockstep on one of these players on second team. I think we differed because I believe I remember who you put to round out, but I ended up this spot for me came down between Desmond Bain and the player I ultimately went with, which was Jaden McDaniels. I don't know why I feel like I'm favoring defense so much about this process, but we seldom talk about how valuable rookies are defensively. And this, this, well, Jason Tate was not a part of this draft class, but Jaden McDaniels is the player I actually went with. Defends all five positions, basically, for the Minnesota Timberwolves. He's guarded every position on at least 10% of his possessions. He spent the least amount of time on center. That's notable. Uh, shooting a, a pretty efficient clip on threes, hitting over 50% of his twos. I don't know. This is one of those players where I say, oh, I'm surprised at how, how much ball skills Sadiq Bey has or Patrick Williams. I don't necessarily see the same with uh, Jaden McDaniels. There might be potential for him to do some straight line stuff, but still looking at the value he's going to bring you defensively, hitting 37% of his threes, the ultimate compliment, I would call him. He's going, it feels like he's going to be that type of, of player. Is he the answer at the four long term for Minnesota? If you're looking at their best five players, I'm not going to give a decided yes because we have to see what other options are going to be available to them. It could be their draft pick this year if it lands in the top three. It could be a trade that they make. It probably won't come in free agency because they don't have cap space. I think he's in the mix. This is just their core. Anthony Edwards, Jaden McDaniels, Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell, and Malik Beasley. That's what I look at it as right now. And so the fact that he's played his way into that uh, tier of importance for Minnesota is a huge deal. I was really close to including McDaniels, but I did ultimately go with Desmond Bain. Uh, the three-point shooting alone has just been so valuable for this Grizzlies team. Joe Ingles, Michael Porter Jr., Joe Harris, Kevin Durant, Seth Curry, Reggie Jackson, Marcus Morris Sr., Bogdan Bogdanovich, Bryn Forbes, and Desmond Bain. Those are the only 10 qualified players in the NBA right now taking at least four threes a game and hitting 43% of them. That is an elite club, and it looks sustainable. It 100% looks like he could be a yearly fixture in that group. I, th I think so many times you see how steep the learning curve can be for rookies entering the NBA. It's tough to figure out how exactly to rotate on defense. It's tough to figure out exactly how you're going to maximize the relatively meager opportunities that you get on the offensive end. And it's hard to accept those limitations, but he has very much been one of those rare veteran rookies where it just immediately looks like he knows exactly what he wants to do. He understands his role completely and he's able to maximize his abilities within that role. I'm not sure there's anything that Desmond Bain is particularly bad at for this Mem Memphis Grizzlies team, which is why he's been seventh in minutes played for them on a very competitive team with a lot of depth and a lot of underrated pieces. And he's one of them. His three and D abilities are immaculate. 
But beyond that, he's able to fill these other secondary and subsidiary roles efficiently without complaint and in a way that maximizes the success of his team on a nightly basis. Do you want to run through, before you list off honorable mentions, let's recap who your two teams were for people that just joined the room. I can do that. I had LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Halliburton, Jay Sean Tate, and Emmanuel Quickly on my first team. I had Sadiq Bey, Isaiah Stewart, Desmond Bain, Patrick Williams, and Facundo Campazzo on my second team. My first team ballot is LaMelo Ball, Tyrese Halliburton, Anthony Edwards, Facundo Campazzo, and Isaiah Stewart. My second team is Emmanuel Quickly, Patrick Williams, Jay Sean Tate, Jaden McDaniels, and Sadiq Bey. And now to run through the many, many, many honorable mentions real fast. Uh, the toughest omission for me was Isaac Okoro. He's been a disaster on offense for the vast majority of this first season in the NBA. His defensive presence is already there. It's already really strong, and it makes a difference, and it's going to make a difference for a long time. And it was enough that I really tried hard to find a spot for him and just couldn't quite do it. Uh, other guys I considered were Xavier Tillman Sr., James Wiseman, Cole Anthony, Jaden McDaniels, Denny Advia, Peyton Pritchard, Devin Vassell, Tyrese Maxey, and Chuma Okiki. And I think you can make cases for basically any of them because the gap between basically anyone on our second teams and anyone in that list of honorable mentions is fairly minimal. Right. And the only honorable mentions I'll add would be I had Desmond Bain as an honorable mention instead of actually making it. And a player who, and I agree with you on Isaac Okoro, he's shown that he can run some pick and roll and finish off straight line drives, just not consistently enough. And there are still, there are plenty of question marks about his range. The other big one I wanted to mention is if he had played more, which he couldn't because of the, how, the depth in Denver, but RJ Hampton has been borderline fantastic in Orlando. He's going to be really good. And so if he had a larger sample size under his belt, he might've ended up being a shoe in for one of these top, you know, three uh, top or excuse me, top two all rookie teams. Um, and the, um, the other one I was going to mention is, and I can't remember if he was a rookie or not. I, maybe he wasn't because is this his second year on a, on a two-way contract before it was converted. I'll look really quickly. Oh, it wasn't. All right. I'm not even going to mention his name because it's a stupid part of my part, but those are the only two honorable mentions I would add to your long list of them. I think the only other one I have to mention, you know, there's a guy averaging 28.2 points, 4.7 assists, and only 1.6 turnovers per 36 minutes, shooting 72.7% from the field and 50% from three. Those are Hall of Fame numbers if he's able to maintain those. And that's Grant Riller. And, you know, you could say he's only done that in 23 minutes, and I don't give a shit. He's been so good in those 23 minutes that I have to mention him here. The player I actually wanted to mention, because Grant Willer is in a different conversation, it's the MVP conversation, Teo Maladon of the Oklahoma City Thunder. He can be a little wild, but I think he's actually going to be – it can be, be hard to discern who are their keepers outside of Shea and Lou Dort at this point. I think he's going to end up being one of them. I can see that for sure. The flashes Great. are there. We are going to leave it there. Please join us again next week, uh, 4 p.m. Eastern time. If you've not checked out the podcast, the Hardwood Knox podcast, go check us out. You can find us wherever you're getting podcasts, or you'll find links on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Until then, we or we do have a quick question from Maxwell Millington. Who would be your rookie of the year? Give, give me your top three options really quick, Adam. It's LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards, and Halliburton in that order. I think – had Ball not returned, Edwards has done enough in the second half of the season that I could see him pushing ahead into that number one spot. But 
ultimately, I don't view rookie of the year as which rookie reached the highest level by the end of the season. If that were the case, Edwards would be my pick right now. But because it's supposed to be an award given to the most productive rookie season, I have to include that first half of this, or really the first third of the season, where Edwards was not there on defense, where his shot wasn't falling and he was taking way too many hero jumpers that didn't make sense within the flow of the offense. LaMelo Ball has consistently been a massively positive presence for the Charlotte Hornets from start to finish. And that, to me, is enough where he's my going away favorite and Edwards and Halliburton are closer together for second place. Uh, Maxwell loves the Grant Roller shout out, by the way, Adam, you have found. I appreciate that. We're going to be best friends, Maxwell. Uh, mine would are is basically the same. It's a mellow ball, then Tyrese Halliburton, then Anthony Edwards. Uh, you hit on my argument for Halliburton by just saying, looking at the season in some, I think Halliburton has been more impactful done it at both ends of the floor. And he clearly doesn't have the, the same ceiling as Edwards. I don't know if that, I mean, well, he might look, is that I'm, true? Not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not ready to put a cap on his ceiling. I don't think he has, a, has the same ceiling as a scorer, but you know what? He does everything else so well that if we're just looking at the, the Draymond green of guards, like the guy who's going to be that impactful at both ends of the floor and probably a terrible comparison, but because Draymond's an all-time defender and not the best great passer, not the best offensive player, Overall, I think though, what you mean is to say that he could be like Malcolm Brogdon and you know be like a potential top 20, 25 player for spurts of, of all the time. season. Of all yeah, time. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, a, like picture like Kyle Anderson, but hitting off the dribble jumpers type deal. Or Manu so like Gino- not Kyle Anderson. Manu Ginobili, but a little bit more under control. I'm gonna, that's what the, the under control Manu Ginobili. That is my ceiling for Tyrese Halliburton. Somewhere. Grant Hughes just got excited and has no idea why. (laughs) Uh, Until next time, guys, please join us again, 4 p.m. Eastern time every Sunday. We normally go longer, but there's been issues with Locker Room sending the audio, so we're going to record a second podcast after this. But you also might be hearing this on the podcast should our audio actually come over. But we will leave you a shout-out, too. And you know what? This is for you, Adam, and for you, Maxwell, leaving you with a shout-out to the one, the only, future multi-time MVP, perennial all-NBA player, and future, inevitable, undeniable, inarguable Hall of Famer, Grant Riller. We have now left the locker room and are ready to begin part two of this podcast, which is a mailbag. We're going to answer some of the uh, the best of the many questions that we received on the NBA Math Twitter account, cover a wide range of topics here as always. But before we do that, I just have to gloat a little bit because I won. I, I converted Dan to the Grant Riller bandwagon. He is now on board with him being a future Hall of Famer, a multi-time MVP, and there really aren't any reasonable questions about that. Just look at what he's done in his whopping 23 minutes of action. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge sample size to go off. but It is. It's 23 more minutes of NBA basketball than you and I have played combined. That's a lot. That's like all, that's like all the minutes. It is. And like 23 is a special number in basketball circles anyway. Like I, I think that it's at this point it's reasonable to start the Michael Jordan comparisons. <laughs> Let's get into this mailbag. We had a bunch of good questions. I will note we had a bunch of award questions. I'm ignoring them because Adam and I are going to do an awards pod, and so we don't want to keep recycling the same content. And also, 
we're talk we're tired of talking about who's going to win MVP because it's just not a debate anymore. If you ever have questions about two through five, that's the interesting point to me right now. But we had other awards questions too. I think about sixth man and about defensive player of the year. We might have even had a most improved player one, but we're going to cover those in a separate podcast. Let's start here with our usual dose of Nuggets questions. Um, at why can't I see this at? This is awkward. Uh, at Dr. Ramblings asks, why are the Nuggets perpetually overlooked? It took Jokic having an historic year as a big man to be talked about, and some people say he still isn't worthy of MVP and the Nuggets aren't a legit championship contender. I would like to chime in here first. I don't think that this is a thing. I don't know that the Nuggets have been perpetually overlooked, and maybe we're basketball nerds and have not overlooked them. I would also say that there are very few people who don't think he's the MVP right now. And so we have to stop stop painting him as the MVP underdog or that he's being slighted. Is he an underdog in the grand scheme of things? Drafted at number 41 and turning into an MVP within basically a half decade, six years? Yeah, for sure. But he's the he's going to he's not gonna be consensus. He's not gonna be unanimous. He's going to be the runaway MVP. So we need to stop. Like stop this. The, the second part of this question I'm more interested in because I do think that the Nuggets are overlooked as contenders in large part because people didn't believe in Nikola Jokic until maybe this season or last season that he could be the best player on a title contender. I think people warmed up to the idea that they could do damage against anyone, particularly after the Aaron Gordon trade. Now I think the doubts spawn from mostly that they don't have Jamal Murray. And while they have been good for the most part without him, while Michael Porter Jr. has, for the most part since Murray's injury, been playing out of his mind, you are going to miss that crunch time element that Jamal Murray brings. The from-scratch shot making, in addition to the to the playmaking, he played tough defense in the bubble last year. Michael Porter Jr. replaces only so much of that. He has the shot making, but it's not the same yet. He's not hitting those absurd off-the-dribble jumpers, and he's definitely not setting up your offense. You might have players that could replace them by committee, and I said on our last podcast, um, I did a fact or fiction saying, fact or fiction, Denver has a better chance of coming out of the West than Utah. And this is without Jamal Murray. I think it's a discussion. I think it's a discussion. So maybe they are being overlooked in the championship discussion. I would argue at this point that's mostly because of Jamal Murray's absence, which if anything, that's respect at a tip of the cap to Jamal Murray and how much he means to this team. To me, it's kind of like the concept of the one person who sc- who stands up in a crowded movie theater, as unfathomable as that may be these days, and yells fire. And there are way more people who are quiet and accepting what's happening and watching their movie in peace. That one person gets a lot of attention. So whether it's with national analysts not wanting to pay attention to the Nuggets, or someone like the inaccurately named Nick Wright wanting to you know, shit on his MVP chances. Did you see what Jamal Murray tweeted? I did. Yeah. Nick wrong. I found that so funny. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, It's fun to pick on those outlandish takes and want to view that as an overall lack of respect. But honestly, like unless you're playing in LA or Boston or New York, I think almost every fan base feels that way at some point, especially when they're good. The other thing is, don't listen to these people. They're, and I understand, I'm not... I mean, you if you want to listen to them and use it as motivation, fine. Yeah, but there are better national... There's better national 
coverage of the NBA than people who are covering every single sport on a talk show. And Nick Wright has to cover a wide breadth of sports. So I'm not trying to insult the work that he put in to get there. I won't do that about anyone. I'm just not if, – if you want, come to this podcast if you want more level-headed, in-depth NBA coverage. I'm going to push back on that. I'm going to push back on that. I will, I will go after him a little bit because of that follow-up video where he says that the reason that he doesn't want to talk about Nikola Jokic as the MVP is because Denver doesn't get ratings. Like, come on. Well, That's just an admission that you're tailoring your opinions to getting people – to view your show and to tune into your show and that there is a level of intellectual dishonesty in play there. That, that to me, that's inexcusable. Even if it's your job to get people to watch your show, at least admit as such on the main platform, instead of a side video that you're putting out while driving your car, that really pissed me off. That was the second part of my argument was these people are playing characters. This is not, I do not at 100%. I, I'm, you're not going to convince me that, Skip Bayless believes everything that he has said over the years. Ditto for Nick Wright. Ditto for Stephen A. Smith. There, if, if there's a level of ignorance where they're saying things they believe that are just wrong, I think it's probably maybe they don't care to do the work, but I would more be inclined that they're covering such a wide breadth of things. The, the more nuanced stuff you're not going to get from them. You don't go there for that. And the other thing is they are trying to get ratings. That's the name of the game now. You have to look at all the engagement fucking going on in social media. Look at what brand accounts have turned into they don't promote their own content anymore they're not promoting writers work we're not even having these video clips for the most part unless you're a tv show like it's the who name your top five players of all time uh would you rather have you know a, a six nine stephen curry or a whatever like six three lebron james type things that's just the that's the, the six nine steph curry by the way <laughs> i'm actually with you but that's just the name of the game now so I I understand these people have jobs to do and a lot of them have worked hard to get in those positions and I'm not going to be able to go on and blather and talk bullshit in front of a camera without you know sweating bullets or stuttering all over the place because I'd be too nervous. There's plenty of talent there. I cannot get myself worked up about a national sports reporter or talk show host and I say national sports because it's every sport not knowing the nuances of my favorite sport or favorite team in a specific sport or saying something inflammatory because they're trying to get engagement. And what you're doing when you're quote tweeting those takes, when you're responding to them, that's exactly what they want. At least that's what the TV show producers want. That's a hundred percent what they want. I think circling back to the original question about the nuggets, to me, the answer is that it's an overall media landscape issue and not anything to do with the nuggets in particular. Correct. And I don't think it's, it's not specific. I, that's a great point because the jazz are not getting enough attention for having the best record in the NBA. The Suns probably aren't either. And I think the Suns are getting more attention or at least relative to what they, what they are at the same time, people are quick to dismiss them because it's the Suns or the talk about, Oh, CP three belongs to the MVP discussion because they sucked before him. And it completely ignores the bubble. The strides Devin Booker has made. Mikael Bridges has made. And also the other talent that they added. Just having Jay Crowder there has been good. Torrey Craig's been absolutely monstrous for them. Turning to Dario Sharks at the five towards the, um, at I think it was the halfway point of last year, maybe towards the latter part of last year, whatever. Like, there are other things they did. But I do think you pointed out, unless they're the Lakers, the Knicks, maybe the Celtics, the Bulls, the Nets, you want to throw those flagship market teams in there. 
that's also a symptom here. So it's not probably any team with like a big three too. Like I think the Clippers get enough attention. Granted, L.A. Yeah, but the younger LA. brother in L.A. Yeah. So or or unless you have that, yeah, Nicole Jokic isn't the draw that Stephen Curry is. So the Warriors are going to get plenty of attention too. That's not that's not the award we're talking about. I don't think it's specific to the Nuggets. I do think they're probably being undervalued. I will give um, Nuggets fans this. They're I still they're being undervalued in the championship discussion even without. Murray. I don't know which team I'd put them in front of, but of those five teams in the West, I don't think they're fifth anymore after watching them. Right. But yeah, I mean, to your overall point, like it is really hard for those people to cover national sports in general. It's hard enough to cover one league on a national perspective. So, you know, if you happen to find a podcast that you think does a decent job of covering every team, like maybe give them a rating and a five-star rating and a review or something. Yeah, that's a good idea. You think so? Yeah. You think that's I, something people should do? Yeah. And if look, if they're the Hardwood Knox podcast, you should do it twice. That would be my recommendation. And we're not even saying us, by the way. There are a ton of like really good national NBA coverage. Go to that. Like there's I'm not gonna I'm gonna leave somebody out. I'm not gonna name anybody. We need to make a running list and on a doc and share it and keep adding to it. Anyway, let's move on to the next question. Thank you for the question, uh Dr. Ramblings. This one comes from Kim at Kim. Jobiel or Jobel, where do the Grizz go from here? And is this a season? Is this season a success for Memphis? They will likely end it after losing the playing game, just like last season. Where are the steps forward? I think the step forward is just kind of internal growth. I mean, every single player playing significant minutes for this team right now is under contract next year. There really isn't room to go out and get a big external free agent addition. I don't think many of these pieces you're going to be shopping in blockbuster deals. But if you look up and down this roster, there is so much talent just waiting to be plumbed. You know, John Morant, while he is not a top five point guard like he said he was, he has potential to get there. Jaron Jackson Jr., you know, he wasn't available for most of this year and I think it's pretty obvious how much two-way potential he has. Kyle Anderson, Dylan Brooks's defense, Jonas Valanciunas, Brandon Clark, Desmond Bain, Xavier Tillman Sr. Like there are enough pieces here for this to be a legitimate contender if John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. in particular continue to make the strides we expect we expect them to make given the level of success they've already reached and their relative age and inexperience levels in the NBA. So I think it's kind of a good situation to be in where you can legitimately look at this roster and be like, let's just run it back and we're just naturally going to get better. Would it be great to make external additions or find another star in the draft? Sure, of course. But given the current pieces, I think this season is a success, even if they're eliminated in the play-in game, because you're continuing to foster the growth from those pieces. And as soon as Jackson was knocked out of the lineup for most of the year, the expectations had to be diminished a little bit. And the fact that the Grizzlies were so competitive from start to finish and managed to get positive contributions from close your eyes and point at the roster. And there it is like, that's a success in and of itself. I agree with everything you said. The season is an unmitigated success to me. And your last point is most salient to me losing John Morant and still being this good. Not having Jaron Jackson Jr. for most of the year still being this good. And Jaron Jackson Jr. hasn't been awesome since he came back. I actually think his his best stretch of the season was like his first two games or whatever it was. I also don't – John Morant hasn't made any sort of leap 
he's good. He's still just as good as he was last year, but this is not, we're not talking about he's made the Zion size leap here in year two or the Michael Porter Jr. size leap here in year two. Not saying he's worse than Michael Porter Jr. overall. I will say the path forward is they, they still need to get another wing. Desmond Bain looks like he's going to be good for them on both ends of the floor. Kyle Anderson has always been that you know cozy two-way player, and the fact that he's hit his threes at a higher clip this year and actually taken them more often is huge. They need that other long-term wing, and it's not Justice Winslow. I'm all, it's To me, it's I know he hasn't played that much this year again, but under 13% from three. The fit with John Morant, they've put him and John Morant going up against a lot of bench-heavy units this year, and it's worked out. That is not enough for me to be like, oh, there's still hope there. Winslow can still do a lot on defense, but if you want to put him in the starting five or in the closing lineups when the game's on the line, there's going to be an awkward offensive fit there. He needs to hit those threes, do better work off the ball, or you need John Morant, who shot a pretty good clip on threes, especially since April 1st. He's not used to stroking these spot-up jumpers in higher volumes. You need one of them to play off the other. I don't know how you get that wing. Is it through the draft? You have made it harder now by being good and probably being out of the lottery or being in the, the very back end of it. You're not a free agent destination. However, there's going to be a time, and it's like this season, I don't know. I don't think they're going to use the full breadth of their cap space. They're going to maybe get to... I think they're going to end up operating as an over-the-cap team, but the year before John Morant hits that max money, so his extension eligibility year, which would be next summer, they should be slated to have cap space. And no, you're not going to get a star because it's Memphis, but maybe that's how you know you sign someone who can squeeze into that combo 3-4 spot that you don't really have right now, or you do it via trade. Like Their future draft picks are valuable. They have a lot of now just their contracts. They're not huge and interesting players that you can flip, and I don't, I don't think they're the team that's going to roll the dice if a Bradley Beal becomes available, even though he would be a fantastic fit on this team. Just get, imagine giving Dylan Brooks's minutes to Bradley Beal. This team is it's a mean, minor upgrade. Yeah. So, and the, the final thing I'll say is, is there another level of Jaron Jackson Jr. that we haven't said yet? Is he going to end up holding up defensively at the five? Is he going to, his offense will be fine, but will he do more off the dribble than just bombing away these super deep threes? So there are multiple paths there. I think the most critical part of moving forward for them is they got to get, a mainstay wing. I do think there is the potential for them to be a sneaky free agency player for said wing. Just because if you look at what they have on the books, the dead money owed to Gorgie Jang and Dion Waiters is coming off after this season. They have a team option for $13 million for Justice Winslow. If you decline that option because you don't think that he can be a contributor given all the injuries that he's suffered, all of a sudden you're looking at like, 20 million in cap space and that could be enough to land that you know not star level wing but that solid starter who you could need to complete this puzzle around the young guys i don't know if this is i thought about that too you i would probably lean towards picking up the team option i think i would too uh just because 13 million is whatever and if worst case scenario like maybe there's a trade that you can make and that expiring contract helps i also don't think this is the year to bank on signing anyone no, in free agency. And then <laughs> when you look at the wings after Kawhi, who is the best wing that's slated to be a free agent? That's a great question I that I don't have an answer to. I don't know if, and I don't know, he would actually be a good fit here. Unless you want someone with more ball skills. I don't know if you want to call him a wing, but it'd be Duncan Robinson. I think is the second best wing on the market after Kawhi. There would be a fun fit for sure. It'd be an awesome fit. I think that's why Desmond Bain has gotten so many minutes of a rookies because they need, that shooting yeah. and he's 
obviously he's deserved the minutes he's gotten. This was an interesting question. It came from at Josh, uh, Josh Cap Kaplan, but there's a one in it. Yeah, a friend of mine, Josh Kaplan. Oh, that's a, I like the clever way he spelled his name too. And the question was really good. Who's your? I don't want to answer. Feel free to answer this question. Who's your most improved player? But he asked, should all stars be disqualified from the most improved player discussion? I think the most improved player this year has to be Julius Randle. The leap that he's made is just seismic. And we've talked about him enough that I don't really feel like we need to back that up too much just because we're talking about a guy who went from outside the all-star conversation to a player who might show up on the back end of some MVP ballots and justifiably so for a Knicks team that is finally moving out of those long-term doldrums. And I think that also kind of answers the second part of Josh's question here. I do think that all-star and all-star caliber players should be eligible. And we've talked about this before where not every leap is the same. Now, if you, if you're improving from, let's say that you can reasonably grade a player on a one to 10 scale and jumping from a one to a five is the same as jumping from a five to a nine in terms of the distance between those rungs on the ladder. But that ladder jump is a lot harder to make because it's tougher to go from good to great or from great to historic than it is to go from bad to good. So no, I don't think that all-stars should be deemed ineligible or discounted or anything like that personally. Like I thought that Giannis should have deserved more most improved player love last or two years ago when he made the jump from all NBA to MVP because the the leap that he made was still just monumental. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you there and I would agree that it's harder to make if you're especially if you're an entrenched all-star. There's also a difference where having your first all-star appearance and making the leap to there is, you know, that's part of your most improved player case. Oh, he made his first all-star appearance. But if you're an all-NBA level player, an all-star player already, and you've gotten that much better, and I think Giannis Tentacubo is a perfect example. Um, the, was it, what was it, what Steph year was it? where he? It was the 2016 the season. Yeah, so I was, I just, that was the low-hanging fruit one. I wanted to make sure I was right, though. So I absolutely don't think they should be disqualified. I don't know that they're ever going to be the standard. I always think that this award is going to be aimed at trying to spot that next superstar and that fits with Paul George winning it, Giannis winning it when he did. Uh, it's not all these players, you know, Goran Dragic won it and that's, you know, all-star level player but never to the heights of Giannis or or Steph. Um, and I don't know what where Julius Randle is going to land in all this. I would say he is my pick. Had Jeremy Grant played more, I think the expansion of his skill set was probably wider than what Randle is doing. I guess with Randall with defense, but I, I do think he would have been in. I also would say if he didn't start dealing with plantar um, fasciitis in his right foot, Shea Gilders Alexander would have been up there for me too, because this is, he just took on the role of the entire offensive engine, just like that. He's been secondary for his first two years and all that. He was the, the primary. So I do think someone had the opportunity to beat Julius Randall. And that actually might've stepped on the toes of this question from at Joe gets busy. Congrats on the sex, Joe. Uh, what player improved more than Julius Randle this year? I'll wait. And silence fills the room. I think Shea had a case. I think Shea had a case. I don't. Sorry. <laughs> like, what love he... Shea. Think he got a lot better, but Julius Randle's leap was just so big. 
what was the leap? What what made it bigger than Shays? Everything. I mean, as nebulous an answer as that may be, like we're, we're talking about a guy who had a very exploitable weakness. You knew that even if he was this wrecking ball who could get to the basket at will and finish, you knew that he was going to go left every time. You knew that he couldn't pass out of those drives. And now we're talking about a guy who can get his own offense from all over the floor while improving as a playmaker, who's able to make those. I think it was Zach Lowe who said the 11th hour passes just out of these impossible situations. And beyond that, he's made those offensive leaps while also becoming a defensive stalwart. But there is no portion of his game that didn't improve. And unlike Shea Gilgis-Alexander, he's doing it on a team that is in contention. That's the other part of this. Is I mean, that give Julius Randle Alexander supporting cast, and then, then maybe sure, it's... sure, absolutely. But I think that Im- the improvement that that Shea has undergone is, I, and I don't want to discredit it at all. So I hope it doesn't come across that way. But it's easier to come by when Chris Paul leaves. You still have a relationship with Chris Paul, so you're still learning from afar. But all of a sudden, you have unfettered access to doing whatever you want on the offensive end on a team that is playing for absolutely nothing and not succeeding. Well, it's succeeding in doing absolutely nothing, but that's about all it's succeeding at. I mean, if you look at the NBA math rolling team ratings right now, the Thunder currently have the lowest score of any team since the process era Philadelphia 76ers. This hasn't been a good team, and you compare that to a Knicks team that has ascended into that Eastern Conference contention tier where it is not just a playoff lock, but the Knicks could very well win one, maybe even two rounds if a lot goes right in that second round. And for Randall to improve so monumentally on that team, that to me just, it, it is an unassailable case. I'm just wondering if he made the, Shea Gillis-Alexander's leap feels more wholesale than Julius Randall, where it's, I think the biggest thing that Julius Randall added is he's hitting these step-back jumpers, step-back jumpers from the baseline. There's, the passing is better, but it's been, you know, he's gotten better at throwing last-second passes. Uh, he had some triple-doubles even during the Lakers days and stuff. It's been there. I get that. So uh, the defensive one might be his most impressive improvement to date being as a team defender because he's, and he's always had moments of one-on-one he is my he is the most improved player and had Shea lasted the entire year at what he was doing I don't know who I would have picked but Shea's role was arguably more difficult to me because of the lack of talent around him and so he's in a developmental year what's supposed to be a developmental year and I don't know how you weigh that where it's oh Julius Randle's age 27 season and he's doing this and players aren't supposed to make that leap or it's Shea's still in the conventional developmental window but now he just doesn't have a ton of help around him. And it was, look, that was before they said Al Horford go home. George Hill wasn't playing. He was injured. Trevor Ariza never reported to that team. He is, and we have another Shea question, so I feel like I'm going to spoil an answer to that. So I'll just wait. But he he had no help. Just offensively, it was him. He was creating everything for himself and for others. And I do think there's a chance that I would have voted him first. And I do think there's a chance that he improved more however you want to frame it than Julius Randle did this season. So personally, I don't really look at ages or experience level or anything when I'm talking about most improved player. It's solely just like value added this season, level reached this season versus the same things in the previous year, which is why I tend to be more okay than a lot of people with including rookie or second year players in that conversation, even though 
there's definitely a camp that wants to immediately discredit sophomores and and validly so because they're expected to improve more coming off of that first season um i i just don't view it that way so the age and the experience level to me at least is is usually pretty irrelevant I think that flip-flop, uh, the, the age and experience level doesn't matter to me. I was just wondering if you view Julius Randles as more impressive because it's less predictable in the sense that, oh, players his age don't improve. I go back and forth on whether they're sophomore. It's more just about the team that the improvement happened on. I think that's fair. Um, let's get to – so we have two TPA questions here. Uh, the first one comes from Keurig is bad. Does TPA adjust for minutes played? i.e. is it a measure of how many points Julius Randle, hey, there's your guy, adds per minute played or total value added increasing with minutes played? Yeah, I mean, kind of, sort of, and the full explanation is in the glossary on the NBA Math website, but TPA is looking at box plus minus BPM from basketball reference and adjusting for possessions played, which is slightly different than minutes, but it does still take volume into account. Theory being a player, it's looking at value added relative to a league average player as best we can. And, you know, as we've said in multiple episodes, it's by no means a perfect metric and context and the eye tests are still important here. But the basic theory is that a player who is twice as good and plays half as many minutes as the player who is not twice as good is adding about the same amount of value. Want to give a special love to this question from at Jonja KP1. I hope I didn't butcher the pronunciation of the at there too badly. Took screenshots of the TPA definition. So I don't know if you if you saw this question. Uh, and I guess it was a threefold question. But the first part of it was, since there's an ongoing MVP discussion and the most, ex- the most used chart is with TPA, I went to check how TPA is calculated, and I wonder if I understand this correctly. So if a player plays more minutes, he will get the same points as a player who plays less, but is two times more effective. If he plays half as many minutes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the same example I was just trying to give. The second part of this was, is Jokic so high because of minutes played and because the passes or assists of center are considered of more value than those of guards? Uh, yes, because he's played more minutes. I believe that as of recording, the only player who has played more minutes in the NBA is Julius Randle. Might be slightly off there, just because I haven't looked at that table in a little bit. Um, but no, the the positional designations don't matter. We just in, include those for easy sorting purposes and easy reference. But you know, especially if we're only delineating between five positions, that's tough to do in today's fluid NBA positional schemes. So no, he's he's so high because he's had a historically good season, and also because the metric tends to favor players who produce both assists and rebounds due to some interaction effects. And his number is probably a little bit inflated, but he's also running away with first place in TPA. So it's hard to say like if you deflated it, what would happen? But I, I think he would still be in first place this year. And I hope that answers the third and final part of your question, where it was. If this is not the reason Jokic is so high, which it wasn't while you were explaining, why is he so high? And you just explained that, Adam. So thank you for the question, John JKP1, and hopefully uh, Adam provided the answer that you were looking for. At GPark01 asked, has any second-year player made as big of a leap this season as Michael Porter Jr.? Um, a lot of Nuggets I think, questions. A lot of Nuggets questions. I think that... You can throw probably R.J. Barrett 
into that conversation. I think that you can include, can you include Zion Zion? Williamson. Yeah. Can you include Zion? I I think you can. You can. And I don't know how much this counts because he's been injured for most of the year, but DeAndre Hunter was certainly on pace to be in that discussion. Yeah. If he had stayed even remotely healthy, uh, Keldon Johnson, maybe probably not, Mm. but there's definitely been some improvement there, but I think, I think you're looking at, yeah, potentially. The I mean, Chumo Kiki, yeah. he didn't even play as a rookie. Like, he's improved a ton. <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's I think it's Zion, R.J. Barrett, and Michael Porter Jr. as the, the standouts who have made pretty substantial leaps this season. I'm going to go ahead and throw, use all those names. And also, he played 20 games. I'm going to give it to DeAndre Hunter. That's more than 25% of this season. So, all right. shout out to him. Next question comes from... At Brandon A. Bert, Brandon A. Bert. This is only tangentially related to the Nuggets. And I actually thought it was a, a fascinating question. Would it be better to build a team around Shea Gilgis-Alexander or Michael Porter Jr.? When players are at a similar level, which I do think that SGA and MPJ are, I tend to default to the guys who have the most important roles. And as good as Michael Porter Jr. is, and as important as his shot-making ability has been, especially now that he's shown so much more ability to generate his own looks and not just serve as this incredibly tall, incredibly accurate spot-up weapon, Gilgis Alexander initiates possessions, and he involves his teammates, and he creates his own shot on a more regular basis. And just by virtue of roles, I would want to build around the guard. Right, and the two things that I'll look at, just to differentiate, I, I I essentially have the same answer as you, but looking at just the disparity in how they're getting their shots, 87.1% of Shea Gilgis-Alexander's baskets are going, went unassisted this year, his made baskets. Among every player to appear in at least 15 games, that's 457 players, he ranks first in that metric. So no one has had more of their made baskets go unassisted than him. And whereas you look at Michael Porter Jr., uh, about 20% of his baskets have gone unassisted this year because he plays alongside Jamal Murray, Nicole Jokic, even Amante Morris, Facundo Campazzo, Will Barton, those guys. And that number has not ticked up a ton since Murray's injury and Morris's injury and Barton's injury. It's around, it's still, you know, it's around like 22, 23% when I checked a, a couple days ago. Can he get to the level where he is hitting more baskets that were self-created? I absolutely believe so. Will he ever be someone, though, who's also initiating the offense in that? And if you are asking him to do that, does his efficiency hold? And right now, I think Shea Gilgis-Alexander has shown that he can hold this difficult role while still holding his efficiency. The only other players who are averaging over 20 points and five assists per game while matching Shea's efficiency on twos, 54.7%, and threes, 41.8%, Steph, KD and Jokic. That's seems like good company. It's okay company. I, yeah, Jokic sucks, which is why he's not going to win MVP. Right. You know, he we we can't. He has no possibility of ever ascending past a lot of like the the previous twenty five MVP winners. This next question comes from Zach at Zach Snyder. I found it interesting because I've been asked some variation of this question on other podcasts and radio shows this year, and I'm actually a little bit surprised by it. How far is too far when it comes to tanking, and are any teams doing too much this year? I will say this question differs and is actually more interesting to me than the version that I've mostly gotten, which is, 
are too many teams tanking and must the NBA be concerned about it? Because I would argue this is a separate question from that a little bit in the sense that there are still like 23 teams actively competing for something right now. And normally we would have a third of the league or more having thrown in the towel by now. Yeah, I am. I have tended to fall more on the pro tanking side of the spectrum here. Um, I wish that it wasn't incentivized, but so long as it is like you're not breaking the rules, as long as you're not like shutting down healthy young players and hindering their developments, like, okay, like you're not always competing to win. That's generally something the front office is doing. If you have a coaching staff that's actively sabotaging your ability to win a game, if you have players who are turning down last-second shots because they'd rather lose than win, that's when you have a real problem, but that's not what we see. It's generally front offices making smaller-scale moves or not putting together the most competitive roster possible because they're incentivized to do so. And if they're willing to except that it could potentially create a losing culture that needs to be shifted when the talented pieces are in place. If they're willing to accept that it might lead to diminished local TV ratings and a paucity of nationally televised games, so be it. They know what the price is and they're clearly willing to do it because the draft as archaic an institution as it may be is set up to incentivize being bad. If you're not really good, there is no reward for teams who are on that mediocrity treadmill the only thing i have an issue with if you're going to tank to try and exploit the way that the lottery is still set up i'm actually more fine with it than ever because you're taking more of a risk since there are flattened odds and you have less of a chance of getting that top pick now that being said i have an issue with the sending players home or not playing them when when they are healthy al horford's a perfect example i agree with that and there are also it, it's a terrible look for the nba to me when they were putting pressure on the new orleans pelicans to play anthony davis after he demanded a trade and that really could have fucked up their franchise because had he gotten injured would that have impacted his trade value maybe not the lakers wanted him so bad they were bidding against themselves and gave up a ton anyway it was worth it because they, they and we're talking about anthony davis so there's not really much risk of getting injured <laughs> you're an asshole um <laughs> But now because it's Al Horford and because it's the Thunder and they're not this marquee national TV draw, he should be there. If they didn't want him on the team, they should have figured out a way to trade him. And had that been getting rid of an asset in the process, which they might have to do over the summer. So I have an issue with that. If he had a legitimate injury, I don't have a problem slow playing it with, you know, Shea might be a bad example because I was actually reading a few days ago that the the tear of his plantar fascia was actually pretty serious. So that's a bad example. But if it's, you know, Lou Dort hasn't been playing a ton, and I don't know if he's trying to play through pain, which is why he's still playing, or if they're just, you know, oh, here and there. Like, that, the stuff like that, and it's the Al Horford one is the extreme. I'm not really a fan of that. I get it from a team's perspective of why you do it, but then you know what? In the situation with the Pelicans and Anthony Davis, they should have been allowed to have told him to go home. So it, it has to be I, – I I'll say I only have a problem with it if it's not going to be equitable. If there's only certain teams can do it, or if only certain players can just be sent away, like Al Horford is not Anthony Davis, so so he doesn't have to play. So make everyone have to play then, if if those are the rules. Is this an old you. man yelling at Cloud moment? That feels like a very romantic. We can go with that if you if it would make you feel better about yourself. I'm willing to it to would, let you have that. It would make me feel much worse about myself, actually. Okay, well then definitely we'll accept it. <laughs> this next question comes from at Tucson John. 
what player had the fewest starts and won the MVP that year? Um, I had brought up the list of MVP winners, and I don't know that this wasn't um, – I couldn't sort by game started, but the fewest games that an MVP has played in and won. I don't. We can't count 98-99, Carmelo and uh, – 49 games because that was a 50 game season 1977-1978 Bill War- Bill Walton played in 58 games and won the the MVP and that's by after that no one else has played under 60 and won and that's actually pretty in- incredible because LeBron James won it in 2011-2012 he played in 62 of the the 66 games so uh Giannis won it in 2019-2020 playing 63 but the season ended up being abbreviated so Bill Walton that that year, him playing fifty-eight games was is clearly the the fewest amount of starts because those are the the games that he played in. I don't know, you know, is there any MVP? I would have to go looking at the list. None of them jump out to me, but there's not like an MVP that was coming off the bench at some point and all of a sudden wasn't. I don't know that. I don't think any player of that. I don't think would, so either. Would be in the MVP discussion to begin with. And even that Bill Walton season was kind of weird because it was almost like he was getting rewarded for what he'd done the previous season where he was even better. He was healthier and he carried Portland to a championship and then kind of like he was really good during that 1977, 78 season. But it was definitely a bit of a reputation play. He got outplayed by George Gervin, David Thompson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That should, he should not have won MVP that season. If you want to make the argument that he should have the previous year, sure. But I'm uh, I don't want to go there in '78. I want to ask if is there should Carmelo have won his '98-'99 MVP award? No. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to make sure we were in lockstep there. Should Carmelo have been allowed to be legally playing basketball? Would probably be the better question at that point. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's get to our final question, which was like super specific, and I'm totally here for it. At Bryson seventy seven s. Which player has the most 27-point games in NBA history? I have a follow-up question I'd like to direct at Bryson. What did we miss that this was a question? But if you So if you could let us know. because Adam, I have no Adam, clue. Do you care to guess who is the leader in all-time 27-point 20, games? Exactly 27 points, not over 27 points. I mean, I, I feel like the safe guess is the all-time scoring leader, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, especially because unlike... Like Wilt Chamberlain and Michael Jordan, he doesn't have quite as many of those ridiculous scoring outputs. So I'll go with Kareem. It is Kareem. I'm convinced that you cheated now or that you read my face when you were guessing beforehand. <laughs> Kareem has 75 27-point games. LeBron is in second with 72. Karl Malone third with 65. Kobe Bryant in fourth with 55. And he's tied with Dirk, who also had 55. So those are the top five in exactly 27 points played. I, I, I want to know why. <laughs> what, what is significant about that? I All right, here's here's my follow up because this might be the answer is is uh, which rookie has the most 27 point games in NBA history? Which wait, what was the question? Which rookie has the most 27 point games in NBA history? Uh, we can actually filter that, I believe. I have already done it. You're not allowed to cheat now. Which rookie has the most 27-point games? Oh, my God. Yeah. Is it Allen Iverson? It is not. Uh, Iverson had two had 27-point two games. Let's I'm guessing that, that question... Anthony Edwards might be the impetus here because he's part of a 12-way tie for fourth place with five 27-point games. 
uh, trailing Alonzo Mourning, who had six, Steve Francis, who had six, and Mitch Richmond at eight. That, I never would have guessed that. That's even more of a specific question than than we actually got. The list of players who have had five 27-point games as, as rookies is really interesting, too, because there are like a number of all-time greats among that dozen. It's uh, it's Kareem, Steph Curry, Terry Dishinger, Anthony Edwards, Tyreek Evans, Ron Harper, Michael Jordan, Pete Maravich, David Robinson, Ralph Sampson, Colin Sexton, and Carl Anthony Towns. All right. Do you think, here's the real question, do you think LeBron is going to surpass Kareem in 27-point games exactly? He's three games behind, so he'd need four more 27-point exactly performances. I think I think he will. I can't say I've thought about this question before just now. <laughs> <laughs> this was a great mailbag. Again, we actually had we had a bunch, probably about ten questions on the awards that we just ignored this time because we were going to do an awards pod. But thank you guys for sticking with us through both parts. Until next time, well, if you have not given us a rating, reviewed us on iTunes, please go do that. I don't care if you use iTunes or not. Adam doesn't care either. None of us care. Head over to iTunes, search Hardwood Knox, throw us a five-star rating no matter what, and then you can write whatever the hell you want in the reviews. Do we suck? Uh, do you hate that my nose looks like the guys from Despicable Me's? I might have already used that outro once for us. Do you hate that Adam has such inflammatory takes that he should probably be on Fox talking about sports? Whatever you hate, whoa, put it in there. Whoa. Throw us the five-star rating. At all, uh, anyway, and definitely subscribe and download every episode wherever you get your podcast. And feel free to let us know if we are only coming out of your left ear, because I know that was a technical issue last week. I apologize for that. I figured it out. It's actually Adam's fault when you really dig into it for getting vaccinated. Shame on you for being a responsible citizen. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, the career all-time leader in 27 points exactly games, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.